0: I'm Steve Morgan, founder of Cybersecurity Ventures and editor-in-chief at Cybercrime Magazine. I'm here with Bruce Schneier, a public interest technologist working at the intersection of security, technology, and people, New York Times bestselling author of the book Data and Goliath, and author of the new book we're here to discuss today, A Hacker's Mind. To learn more about Bruce, visit schneier.com. That's S-C-H-N-E-I-E-R dot com. Bruce, welcome. Thank you for joining us today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So, Bruce, it's a treat for our listeners to have you on with us again. Your new book is A Hacker's Mind, How the Powerful Bend Society's Rule and How to Bend Them Back. Give us a 30,000-foot view uh, or an introduction before we dive in.
1: So basically what I'm doing is I'm taking hacking out of the computer field into other fields. So a great example is the tax code. It's not computer code, but it's code. It's algorithms. It has inputs. It, it has outputs. It. You make calculations. And those algorithms have bugs. We call them tax loopholes. They have exploits. We call them tax avoidance strategies. And they are black hat hackers. We call them accountants. So I'm really thinking about social, political, economic systems through the lens of hacking. How they work, how those hacks are executed, how they are patched, right? What lessons we can learn from computers into these more social systems. Then at the end, how AI will affect this and how it will change everything.
0: So, Bruce, the book starts out part one, Hacking 101. And in the first chapter, you answer the question, What is hacking? So tell us, Bruce, what is hacking?
1: So, in my generalization, a hack is something that the system permits but is unintended and unanticipated by the designers. All right, so it's not cheating on your taxes. It's finding a loophole, right? It's finding something that is in the law, but subverts the intent of the law. Just like finding a vulnerability in Microsoft Windows is in the code, but subverts the intent of the code. So it's an exploitation. It is a subversion, unintended, unanticipated. It right, hacks are things that follow the rules Let's subvert the intent. So that's my generalization and why it also works for the legal system.
0: So Bruce, early on in the book, you devote a couple of short chapters to ATM hacks and casino hacks, both of which I found very interesting. Can you touch on that for listeners? Because we don't hear a lot about it, and I think it's great foundational knowledge to help people understand hacking.
1: I mean, one of the things I like about my book is I get to tell a lot of fun stories of hacks in many different systems. So I do. I spend time on hacks of casino games and different ways they've been hacked, both technically and non-technically, throughout the years. ATM systems, right? They are just computers. Then I also look at sports. I mean, hacks against the rules of hockey, of football, of basketball. It's the same idea. There's a set of rules and people want to subvert them. They want an advantage. They want to win. So how are those hacked? I'm just trying to get my readers into this notion of seeing hacks everywhere, to see these kind of subversions, wherever you see sets of rules, and then people who want to maximize their advantage within those rules.
0: Now, correct me if I'm wrong, Bruce, but this is not a typical Bruce Schneier book, right? When we look back on, you know, the body of work you've done, which has been amazing. I'm a big sports fan. You touch on sports. I was presently surprised by the sports hack chapter. In fact, I went back and I read that a second time. You know, is this, you know, different for you, this book, much different than what you've done in the past?
1: I don't think it's that much different. I mean, you're right that my... Career has progressed. I mean, I consider it in sort of an endless series of generalizations. I'm starting out writing about cryptography, writing about math, applied cryptography in the 90s. And then I write about computer security and network security. Beyond fear is general security technology. That's like 2004. Then I'm writing about the economics of security, the psychology of security, the sociology of security, my book on trust in 2010, and then more into the public policy of security. Right, so Data and Goliath, about the politics of privacy, Click Here to Kill Everybody, the politics of IoT and more safety and security. So here I am generalizing again. But you know, to me, each step is another step. And I think you're right. This is the furthest book from my core. And I really was worried, writing it and publishing it, that it would be seen as too far and it wouldn't be coherent. But I've gotten a great reception. The reviews have been beyond my expectations in a variety of magazines and publications. New York Times reviewed it, Science reviewed it, Financial Times, and then Booklist and Kirkus. So I've been really happy with the reception, but you are right that it is a further step away from computers. I'm sort of taking the notion of computer systems, really formal systems, and generalizing them to formal systems of rules of any sort, not only rules that a computer follows.
0: Well, to build on that, Bruce, I want to emphasize this book, A Hacker's Mind, is for literally everybody. Before we got started today and you came on in here in our studio with our GM of production, Paul, I said, hey, you know, you have got to read this book because you can understand it. I'm going to tell my aunt who, <laughs> seriously- and you my, my, that <laughs> nicely, of course. My, my 75-year-old aunt asks me about hacking and cyber all the time, and it's hard to really break it down. This book is for students, it's for educators, it's for parents. This is really a great book. This is not just for you know, the technical crowd who may have read you know, a lot of your previous books.
1: Thank you for that. And I think I made that shift about three books ago. <laughs> so my original books are published by Wiley. Mm-hmm. They're a computer tech publisher. They publish applied cryptography they published Secrets and Lies Beyond Fear. I mean, they're publishing my tech books. Right. And with Dating Goliath, I moved to Norton, which is very much a trade press. And, you know, Dating Goliath was sold in airport bookstores, and that's going to be for regular people. So that book, and then Click Here to Kill Everybody, and now this book, I'm really writing for a general audience. Because I think that's the audience that needs to hear this And I feel I am good at explaining tech to non-techies. So that feels like one of my superpowers. So that's what I'm using.
0: All right. So then let's go on and let's do a little bit more of that. So Bruce, in part three of the book, you open up with Hacking Heaven. I was surprised to see that. And I enjoyed that. So for all of the sinners and saints who are listening and everyone, whether they're a believer or not, what's the message in that chapter?
1: It's again, it's anything can be hacked. And in that chapter, I'm talking about different hacks against religious rules. So whether it's selling indulgences in the Middle Ages or, you know, eating fish on Fridays and, you know, goose now counts as a fish because they swim in the water. Or from my childhood, I had Orthodox Jewish relatives who had all sorts of hacks to make sure they could watch the hockey game on the Sabbath where you couldn't turn the TV on. (laughs) That involved timers and presetting the station. You know, and I'm sitting here as a kid thinking, you know, this can't be right. You know, I mean, I get that you're following the rules, but the intent of the rules is that the Sabbath is special. Not that you can watch the hockey game if you can figure out how to get the TV to turn on without pushing the button. But in fact, you know, that is how a 2000 year religion survives in the modern day. So another one of the lessons of that chapter is hacks are how systems evolve and that this evolution is important. So hacks are not just bad. They're not just subversions that are harmful. Sometimes they're subversions that are helpful. So, going back to sports, I talk about curving your hockey stick, which was a hack. But maybe say why it's a hack. Not because it's against the rules. The rules were silent on the curvature of your hockey stick. But hockey sticks were always straight. But until someone realized I can curve it and the puck moves much faster, it gets air, the game becomes faster, more exciting. The fans like it, and now the rulebook specifies maximum curvature. It became part of the game. And right? so hacks are how systems evolved. So
0: Bruce, in part five, as we get you know, later into the book, you talk about hacking political systems, and you cover a lot, voting eligibility, election hacks, money in politics. Talk to us about this, and what do you want people to take away?
1: So again, these systems are being hacked. And let me take two that are kind of obvious. The filibuster is a hack. It's not new. It was invented in 60 BCE by a Roman senator named Cato the Elder, who looked at the rule book, and it probably wasn't a book back then, and the rule said that all Senate business must be concluded by sundown. And he realizes, like, if I never stop talking, Senate can never do anything, and they got to close the doors at sundown. So he hacks the Senate rules to stop things from getting done, right? So that was a hack. Gerrymandering is totally a hack, right? Can we manipulate the shape of districts to ensure a particular outcome in an election in that district? Both of those are allowed but the way the intent is subverted. The intent of the Senate is not to, like, stall and not complete business. But both of these things are now enshrined in our politics. And there are other things. I have examples from other countries in Japan. they have a different delaying tactic in the UK there's a tactic of inserting measures into bills. India has their own hacks or depending on the law, there are different hacks. And really, I'm showing that the hacks become normalized. you know if you are Microsoft and someone hacks Windows, you issue a patch in two weeks. That's easy because you're in charge of Windows and you issue the patch. If someone hacks You know, the rules of the Senate, there's no singular body in charge. There's a lot of conflicting opinions on whether it's a good idea or not. So it's a lot harder to patch. Another sports example, one of my favorite ones, 1975, some team shows up on the Formula One racetrack with a six-wheeled car. And everyone says, you can't have a six-wheeled car. And they say, here's the rule book. Show me. And it turns out that the Formula One race rules are silent on the number of wheels that a car could have because nobody imagined that a car could not have four wheels. But the Formula One racetrack authority, I don't know who they were, they have some French name, patched the rule book. And if you go to the rule book today, it will say that a car can have no more and actually no less, just in case you get any ideas, than four wheels. And that's because the Formula One race committee has a singular authority on the rules of the game. And it's very different when you get to more political systems. Nobody's in charge of the rules of democracy. Right? They are developed from the ground up through a lot of negotiation. So, if a hack is discovered, like gerrymandering or the filibuster, or you know ways to inject money in politics that are different, there isn't a committee that will say that's not okay. You can't do that. Right? Suddenly, it's a political negotiation, and that's something a lot harder.
0: I remember a New England Patriots football game, uh, snowstorm, and Bill Belichick, the coach, sends a snowplow out onto the field, and, you know, Adam Vinatieri steps out, kicks a field goal. That was very controversial. If I remember correctly, afterwards, you know, there was a lot of debate on, you know, can you actually do that? Nothing was in the rule book, but I guess that was a hack.
1: Wow, I didn't know that one. That's a perfect example of a hack. <laughs> yeah. So was the run and shoot offense. Yeah. No one thought you could do that. Like, someone invented that.
0: Out of curiosity, Bruce, are you a sports fan?
1: I am not, but I'm interested in rules and how rules are perverted. Right. And sports are an endless series of examples of people looking for an advantage, right? Combing the rule book, whether it's bicycle racing or Formula One racing or football. There's a way of hitting a cricket. I don't even know the rules of cricket. There's a way of hitting a cricket pitch over your head that someone invented. There's a hack to pickleball, which I read about. It's not in the book because I read about it afterwards. So sports are a good example of a place to find hacks. So I'm not a sports fan, but I'm a I'm kind of a rules fan. Right.
0: So let me ask you about something that gets a little more complicated. And you do break it down, you make it easier for people. Cognitive systems. Maybe you could just start off and just explain to, you know, the everyday person, you know, what is a cognitive system and a little bit about what you covered in that chapter on hacking cognitive systems.
1: So here I'm thinking about hacking basically your brain, you know, ways to subvert brain systems. Now, this is kind of a stretch because there are no rules, right? There's no designer. These are evolved systems. They've evolved for purposes. And, you know, the simple example might be Facebook hacking our attention, or I guess now we we would say TikTok doing it, right? Presenting us things that are addictive or, you know, that really subvert the intent of our attention systems or our notions of, of tribalism, or our notions of trust. You know, different ways these systems can be subverted in a way that is unintended and gives someone else an advantage. So it's kind of a reach here, because these are not rules in the same way the rules of golf, or the rules of you know, PDF files are rules, but it's the same basic idea. So I think it is worth talking about.
0: You know, it's interesting, Bruce. I hadn't thought of this until reading the book and now listening to you. There's a local takeout restaurant that I go to, and they recently revamped their system. And the last time I went in there to pick up an order, I was presented with a tablet to check out. And I had to sign and click, but I was also forced to select giving either, and this is for takeout, this is not for you know, uh, table service, and I was forced to click 5%, 10%, or 15% as a tip. I almost kind of felt hacked. <laughs>
1: so you're also given a no tip option, but it's harder to find. Yes. And actually, there's been a lot of writing about this, and you might go to a coffee shop, or even like you know, you're buying a, a pound of raw beans at a Starbucks, and you get the same interface. And the interface has default tips that are higher. And that is a cognitive hack. And this gets into what we in the industry call dark patterns. If that no tip is a smaller font, is harder to find, you're less likely to use it. So you're being nudged in a particular direction. And dark patterns and these computer user interfaces that you know try to manipulate us are certainly cognitive hacks. But it's funny, though, the thing about tipping has been written about extensively recently. Because you're right, all the rules are changing. But
0: I think what your book opened my eyes up to as as I just read more and more, thinking of that example, it wasn't so much the, the system because that was obvious, but the fact that somebody, there was a person, somebody decided that they wanted to change people's behavior when they're checking out. So just that thought in their head before they actually implemented it, you know, was where it started.
1: And that's right. Right. How these systems can be used. So you as you know, a shop owner are incented to play these manipulative games, and we do fall for them. You'll see three tip options. People are most likely to pick the one in the middle, just because if there's three options, you tend to pick the average one. So if I make the options 15, 18, 20, or 18, 20, 23, that makes a big difference.
0: Right. You don't want to be cheap. You don't want to be you know, wasteful. So you go right. right in the middle. So you
1: pick the one in the middle. <laughs> so now I can manipulate you depending on what the numbers are.
0: So Bruce, of course, we can't conclude here. I do have a couple more questions, but we have to cover AI chat. GPT is all the rage right now. It's bringing artificial intelligence to the forefront of our minds. And part seven of the book, you cover hacking AI systems. Talk to us about that and, and what you want our listeners to know.
1: So I think this is a really important thing to talk about, and the notion of AI becoming hackers. So I'm not talking about hacks against AI. I'm talking about AI finding new hacks. So we started with the tax code. Let's sort of end there. Finding tax loopholes is a human creative activity. It involves combing through the law, looking for dependencies or, you know, little tricks that the creators of law didn't think of or didn't notice. Could we have an AI do that? Could an AI be fed the countries or the world's tax codes and find loopholes? Like, could it figure out that we should register our ships in Panama We should incorporate our companies in Delaware. You know, could it find the double Dutch Irish sandwich that Apple and Google and other companies use to avoid taxes for so many years? That involved the tax laws of the United States, Netherlands, Ireland, and a Caribbean offshore tax haven, four different countries. Could an AI find those sorts of things? And if it can, how many will it find? One, 10, 100, 1,000, a million. We don't know. But it's really interesting to think about whether an AI system can ingest a set of rules and find the loopholes. Now, sometimes it'll be easier. I mean, you know, curving your hockey stick probably impossible because you got to understand not just the rules of hockey, but the aerodynamics of the puck and the stick and the physiology of the players. It just seems so ambiguous. But the tax code or financial rules, are kind of algorithmically tractable. So it's more likely you will see those. So I'm really thinking about what happens when AIs can do that creative part that has heretofore been the sole purview of human beings.
0: So do you think artificial intelligence makes life better or worse, Bruce, in the context of cybersecurity? You have you know, two sides there. So you have cyber criminals, hackers, or black hats, if we want to you know, define the bad guys, so to speak. And then we have cyber crime fighters, cybersecurity professionals, people who you know, aim to do good. And you know, these tools are available to both sides.
1: So the question is, does AI benefit the attacker or defender more? Right, Good guys, bad guys is not the right way to think about it because the good guys can attack and defend. The bad guys can attack and defend. Okay. And the answer to your question is we don't know yet. In the near term, I think it definitely helps the defense more. The offense is already attacking at computer speeds. Being able to make decisions and defend at computer speeds will be an enormous benefit. But long term, we don't know. And it could go either way. The thing about AI is that advances are very discontinuous and non-intuitive. Things that we think are easy end up being hard. Things we think are hard end up being easy. And we don't actually know until the breakthroughs occur. So the ultimate answer to your question is don't know. And you probably won't know for a while. But The near-term answer is the defense. It helps the defense more initially.
0: So I want to close out here, Bruce, asking you a question about young people. I have six kids. Two of them are still in college. My youngest is 11 years old in sixth grade. Computer science, obviously, you know, is is something that kids are learning in school. And I think they're starting to learn about, you know, some more advanced topics. But what about the hacker's mind? Is this something that should be covered? Should there be a curriculum in college? Should even, you know, middle schoolers be learning about
1: this? I think kids are natural hackers. You know, one of my early chapters talks about kids as natural hackers. They don't understand the rules in the same way that adults do. So thinking outside the box is kind of natural for them. So I definitely think that we should encourage this kind of hacking mindset in kids. I think it's natural and it's just a better way of interacting with the world. Now, I teach at the Harvard Kennedy School, so I'm teaching public policy, cybersecurity, and I try to teach them how to think like hackers. You know, I don't know if it should be part of the high school curriculum. It feels like too much like teaching people how to be subversive. So maybe there's a goodness in that, but I think it is something that we should nurture. And there are people who think that way intuitively. and I think they're very valuable for society because they think outside the box and we need people to do that. We have a lot of problems that, you know, in the box thinking isn't solving.
0: Well, Bruce, we really appreciate having you come on. So many of us follow you. In fact, The hacker community follows you. The world's most famous hacker, arguably, Kevin Mitnick. I was in touch with him a week or two ago, and he had praise for you. So, you know, I'm sure they're all going to really appreciate this book from a completely different perspective. So thank you so much for being here.
1: I'm excited about it. And thanks for reading, and thanks for talking about it.
0: I'm Steve Morgan, founder of Cybersecurity Ventures and editor-in-chief at Cybercrime Magazine. Joining us today was Bruce Schneier, a public interest technologist working at the intersection of security, technology, and people. To learn more about Bruce, visit Schneier.com. That's S-C-H-N-E-I-E-R.com. You can keep up with all of our media at CybercrimeMagazine.com.